It's uh, good to have you gather with us this morning to worship. And this morning we launch into a, a new series, a short series through the book of Haggai, or Haggai, I don't know how you pronounce it. You can choose. Have you thought lately of how many choices you actually make on a daily basis? To think back even this morning, how many choices you made? You had to decide to get up, right? You all had to choose that. You had to get showered. You had to decide what to wear, what to eat, when to leave your house, how fast to drive, where to park, where to sit in the service, even though someone took your seat. And you make hundreds and hundreds of decisions each day. And when you leave the service, you'll be faced with 100 more decisions on where to eat or what to eat, what to do with the rest of your day. Every single one of us, uh, no matter what your age, is a decision maker. Some of us are reluctant decision makers and others are decisive. Some float between the both extremes dependent upon the situation. But we all make decisions and there's always consequences to our decisions. Some are good consequences and some not so good. This morning I want you to go back in history to 536 BC where God's people have trekked their way back to Jerusalem, back home, back to where they need to be and they choose to begin to rebuild their lives. Can you imagine all of the decisions that will need to be made? If you've ever moved, especially from one state to another, you can imagine the list of things that need to be taken care of. It's even worse when you move from, from one country to, the, to another. Trust me. Decision after decision, choice after choice, each one with its own consequence. How will we spend our money? How will we spend our time? Where should we put the most energy? And this morning, we're going to talk about the book of Haggai and, the, and really choices before we dive in really to, to sections and expository messages through Haggai, I wanted to um, zoom out and, and look at the book as a whole. It's like when you're flying and, and things seem so much different from the air. If you've ever flown in or left a city, when you're up high, you can see a lot more. Um, you can see how Seattle looks and the topography of the area. And, and I believe when we, we approach a book this way, it gives us a fresh look at the book as a whole. So we're going to we're going to fly over the book of Haggai this morning and, and touch down ever so briefly at different points along the way. In fact, this is the second shortest book in the Old Testament behind Obadiah. Haggai is a, the preacher in this book, and he's mentioned elsewhere in Ezra chapter 5 and 6 with his preaching about rebelling of the temple. But nowhere else is his name mentioned in Scripture. His name comes from the Hebrew word hag, which means festival or pilgrim to a festival, so this prophet is one who's on a pilgrimage, a journey with God during the festival, and we'll see that as we unpack this book. As for a historical background on the book, we need to trace ever so briefly uh, to the days of the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when God's children were invaded by the Babylonians in 606 BC. And if you remember, even if you don't, there were many people who were taken away as exiles. It, it began as a chain reaction of the invasions that happened in, in 597, and then again in 587, and then finally in 586, when Jerusalem fell and was burned. And the temple was then destroyed. And another mass exodus of, of the Jews, exiling really of the Jews, came as they were taken to Babylon, and they lived there for decades. But in 538, 
The Babylonians were invaded by Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire, and shortly after Cyrus's reign, he decreed that Jews could return to Jerusalem and even promising to help in the rebuilding of the temple. And so history tells us that in 536 BC, a large number of Jews, some say close to 50,000, made the 900-mile journey to Jerusalem from Babylon. Some, though, stayed in Babylon. They, they grew in stature, they made a life for themselves, and so they stayed there. But those that made the trek, they came and they, they, they landed and they began to lay the foundation stone to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed years earlier. But then the Samaritans came and opposed the building process and everything stopped. Years went by, almost 20, and the Persian Empire went through a few different rulers. Then in 522, Darius came to the throne. It was during this reign that Haggai now preaches these four sermons that make up the short book. From late August to mid-December, 520 BC, Haggai gave these four sermons. And perhaps it surprises you that the Bible gives such exact dates, but history supports this. Perhaps you think the Bible's too old and outdated and has no bearing on our lives, but it does. So I hope this study, as we look at the book of Haggai in the next few weeks, we'll see and understand the relevance of God's word and how it, how it applies to our life. So that, in a nutshell, is, is the book, and we're going to dive in. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll look at the book of Haggai this morning. Father, we thank you for bringing us together to worship you. And we recognize that we all come from different experiences this week, some from enjoyable weeks, some from difficult weeks. And we are simply thankful to make it here this morning. And we recognize you know us intimately and you love us. And God, I ask that you would take your word this morning and apply it to our hearts. May you be glorified in this sermon. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I have four things that I want to consider, some things to think and some things we can learn from the book of Haggai. And just a, a warning, the first two are longer than the last two. So if you'd like to take notes, you can bleed over into the third and fourth point. But the first two are much longer than the last two. The first one is to, we can learn about thinking carefully. Are you where you thought you would be at this stage of life? Are you doing the thing that you thought you would do when you were in high school? I had no idea I was going to be a pastor in high school. See, most of us begin adulthood with plan A. And, and sometimes it gets abandoned to point to plan B, sometimes even plan C and plan D. And then it comes our life. For some, our, our lives haven't turned out the way we thought. Some curveballs have been thrown and unexpected turns came and we adjusted Life isn't always smooth, but sometimes plan B is better than plan A. And other times, plan B is a serious downgrade than plan A. And when we come to Haggai chapter 1, we come to a people who have shifted drastically to plan B. And, and it seems they have hunkered down, they're trying to, to keep out of sight now. This was, the, this was the God's people, the Jews in 520 BC. So look at chapter one, and, and I failed to say this, if we're going to walk through the text, so I didn't read it yet, but it's on page 743 if you're using a book provided in the pews, and I encourage you to have a Bible open. We're going to be hunk, hunkered down right in the text, so if you don't have a Bible open, either one provider on your phone, you're going to get lost, so I encourage you to turn there, 
Look at chapter one, verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, and the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earn, earns wages does, n- does so to put them into a bag with holes. As I said earlier, the people have been back in their country for 16 years now. And for the first few months, they were diligent about their work to rebuild the temple. But then opposition came and they abandoned the work. Instead, they turned to their own homes. They, they pour their efforts and their energy and their time and their money into their home. And it's astonishing, isn't it, when we don't like the work, we can find dozens of excuses to not do the work, right? We, we use any opposition that comes to delay our obedience. And it seems also, though, even that some Israelites were actually outwardly opposed to rebuilding the temple because it says there at the end of verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people, they may say it's, it's too expensive, it's too difficult, the, the labor was too intensive, there's too much opposition. And, and there were some that didn't want it, and so they pushed, and the others recoiled. Sometimes it only takes one bad apple to derail a whole group of people. Instead, they they look to build up their own personal lives. They would spend their time and their money to build their own paneled houses, he says. If If it was not the time to rebuild the temple, then why was it time to build their own homes? The word translated panel doesn't simply mean that their houses were were ornately decorated. It means to cover, it means a roof or roof. How do you guys say that? Roof or roof? I say it wrong all the time. It means that their houses were finished. They were completed. And at the point that God was making was that the people had the time and money and energy to put effort into building and furnishing their own homes while claiming at the same time that they didn't have the time or money or or energy to restore the temple. And things didn't add up. And to make matters worse, the economy was a wreck. He says, In verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have a fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You ever put coins in your pocket and you have holes in your pocket? It doesn't work well. The harvest had been poor and inflation was on the rise and it seemed like their money was just falling right through. And yet God is calling them now to rebuild the temple. Why? Well, in verse 8, we haven't read it yet, but look at verse 8. He says, he answers, that I, may, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And why would a temple bring, uh, bring him pleasure and glory? I mean, it's just a building. I mean, God didn't even seem to warm too quickly when, when David originally suggested it in 2 Samuel. So why would God care now? A few reasons. 
for the people to rebuild the temple, it was a statement to themselves that they still wanted to follow God and cherish him. And sacrificing for God would show themselves that God would take a higher priority than their own lives. And as a nation, rebuilding the temple would show the other nations that the God of Israel had not left them when Jerusalem fell. It would vindicate God before a judging world. But from God's viewpoint, the temple was a visible sign of the covenant promise that was bound him to his people. And it represented his continued faithfulness to them. And he would fulfill all of his promises to his people. As he said in 2 Samuel, he will have a house and God will fulfill his promises to his people. The Lord had told David that his son Solomon would build a temple and Solomon did. The temple was a symbol of God's living among the Israelites and not abandoning them. God also predicted through the prophet Isaiah that the temple would be destroyed and he also prophesied through other prophets that it would be rebuilt. And so when the people arrived back in Jerusalem, what should have been on number one on their to-do list? To finish the temple. Sometimes when your life heads to plan B or plan C, we get distracted by the main thing of what we should be doing. We all make choices, right? And Haggai preaches to them. He says in verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought in the land and hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what, on what the ground brings forth on the man and beast and all their labors. See, instead of re rebuilding the temple, they rebuilt their personal lives. They chose to neglect God, and now they suffer because of it. Their prized personal life is being blown away like chaff in the wind. Why? Because choices have consequences. Their choice after the opposition was to abandon the rebuild, to leave the temple in disarray. But the greatest danger for the people wasn't that they had abandoned the rebuild of the temple. The greatest danger is that they had abandoned God. And here's the scarier thing. They had no idea that they'd done it. That's usually the case when you fade away from God. It's usually slow, but also deliberate. Moving farther away and not realizing it. And friends, you need to understand it is pure grace that God sends a preacher to his people. And he says to them, consider your ways. And what he means here is to think carefully about your life. And how many this morning here seated need to think deeply about how their life is going. Perhaps you thought this morning that it would be an easy in and out service, a little singing, a quick offering, a short sermon, then you'd be on your way to spend the day how you want. Or perhaps your default mode in life is to consider the ways of others. Your way of deflection 
of considering your own life is to spend your time criticizing other people and their choices. But God's word is for you, friend. This message is for you, so don't listen for someone else. Listen to God's word for yourself. Consider your ways. Don't push against it, friends. It's God's grace in your life that you're here to sit under the preaching of God's word. And he's saying, think carefully about your life. You might have come here this morning uh, at an invite from a friend or a family member, or perhaps you're just checking out church. Or maybe you come every week. Perhaps you sit here because mom and dad make you come every week. Praise the Lord for mom and dad. Either way, God is telling you this morning, consider your ways. Think carefully about your life. Friends, if you're not trusting in God for life, the Bible says that you're currently sinning in rebellion against him by separating yourself from him. To rebel against God means you're choosing to live your life your way, the way you want to live. And you're not wanting to submit to anyone, especially God. And the Bible also teaches us plainly that the wages of sin and rebellion is death. You see, my friend, you may not be guilty of neglecting to rebuild the ancient Middle Eastern temple, but you're very guilty of neglecting God who made you and who commands you to obey him. And God in his incredible grace and love for us sent Jesus to be human like you and me and to live a life on earth that was without any sin whatsoever so that he could die for all those who would trust in him. But if you continue to neglect Christ, God will one day judge you. And this neglect is serious. And I pray and I have been praying this week that you would understand this, that God would make it clear to you. You confess your sins, repent of your trust in yourself and trust in Christ. Consider your ways. Is Christ being neglected by you? And Christians, brothers and sisters, you too need to consider your ways. You need to think carefully about your life. Are you a faithful Christian to a local church? There's so much we can learn from this book. If you've neglected to be a part of a church family, then why do you think you're any less guilty than the Israelites who were neglecting the rebuild? What is it in our lives that is holding us back from giving all of our life to serve God? If you notice as you read the book, and I hope you'll spend some time reading it this week, God brings discipline in proportion to the sin. They looked for satisfaction in their work and their food and their clothes, and they always walked away wanting more. And God is so gracious to not allow us to find our full satisfaction in anything other than him. And that's grace, friends that he wouldn't allow us to be fully satisfied in anything else but him. 
Do you see grace in that? Consider your wealth, friends. Why did God give it to you? Is it for your benefit only? Consider your home. Why did God give you that home? Is it only for your family and their comfort? Consider your discretionary money. Where does it go each month? Sometimes we're not prepared to give as the Lord leads us because we're caught up in spending that perhaps isn't necessary. But not just money and wealth, where does your discretionary time and energy go? You know, each person is given a, a wallet of, of time to spend with, with the, their job and their family, and each person is different. But after you sleep and eat and work and see your family, where do you spend the rest of your time in the week? What have you committed your schedule to? And I pray that you would be careful to spend some time to consider how am I living my life? Not all of our schedules will look the same. So I pray for the grace of God and, and his spirit living in you to convict you and to give you wisdom because Satan does not want you to consider your ways. He wants you to ignore the spirit's promptings. So you need to ask hard questions. And may I be so bold, you have to invite other people into the conversation. Brothers and sisters that love you, and ask those questions. Consider your ways, consider your time, consider your money and your energy and think carefully about your life. And this is a gentle rebuke, my friends, but a necessary one. Charles Spurgeon said about this, he said, sometimes it happens that people get angry and hate the preacher who too plainly rebukes them for their sins. But when the Spirit of God works within them, they take heed to what is said and receive the preacher's message as from God himself. And I pray that God would use my words to bring about his work in your life. So that's the first thing we can learn. Second, we learn to obey faithfully. Friends, our Lord is not a harsh taskmaster just waiting for you to step out of line so that he can punish you severely. When we read the Bible, we see real people making real sinful decisions over and again, and we see a real loving God who shows real patience and real mercy over and over again. Our Lord is not a cruel person. He loves us. And in his love, he confronts our sin so that he can forgive us and show us mercy and grace when we repent of our sins and follow him. See, God shows his grace for his people in the first 11 verses, and then we see the response in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealto, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Friends, this is the beautiful picture of repentance. The remnant, those that were left, changed their selfish priorities in life, and they feared the Lord, and they obey him. 
This is what ministry is all about. And do you see the aspects of repentance here in the text? In verse 12, there's the activity of repentance. It says, the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And again, in verse 12, it says, it shows the drive of repentance. The people feared the Lord. And what that means, they had proper reverence for God, acknowledging him in their life. And the last, there is the cause of repentance in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of the people. So I don't know if you caught this, but repentance is not merely a human work. The Lord works repentance in our souls. He always has. He stirs up our spirits to turn away from sin and turn towards him. It is a work of God, and so only he can receive praise and glory for our lives that have been turned to following him. And he doesn't leave us. And he declares, I am with you. I am with you. And they began to work on the house of the Lord, the host, their God. They found a much better choice for their lives that is long-lasting and enduring than investing remodeling into their own houses. And friends, I want to encourage you, even warn you, don't read Haggai and think about a building program for a church. That's not what this book is primarily about. I, I understand there's some third-order implications about church buildings, but our buildings are not equated with the Old Testament temple. That's not the purpose of this book or this sermon series. Christ is the temple. And if you were to spend the afternoon reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 6, you would see that we who have been incorporated into Christ have been called his body and are the temple in which Christ lives. This is the temple we want to see built up. The church. It's the body. It's us. Yes, we should take care of the building we meet in, but it's only a tool for God to use. The focus is us, the church family. We are now the temple in which Christ dwells. And the point of ministry each week is that we want to see people who fill this room each Sunday built up in Jesus Christ. The church will be built up as God's truth is is preached and as we give ourselves to listen to it and we're convicted by it and we take it in. And we look at it like a mirror, seeing ourselves and walking away to change as a result of the word and its impact on our lives. So this is what the congregation must not neglect. If you neglect the work of listening to the word preached, it will undermine the church. And if the word is neglected to be preached in the church, things begin to fall apart quickly. Christians, if here, as you consider your ways, if you think carefully about your life in regards to the three aspects of repentance that I mentioned before, which ones do you need to address this morning? Are you obeying God as you have been instructed in his word? You know, it's good to be reading his word daily, but it's even better to apply it and obey it. Friends, are there any outstanding issues of obedience to your life that you're not addressing? What's stopping you? Second, though, what are you doing to cultivate the fear of the Lord? Remember, fear here means reverence. Are you reverent towards God? And what that means is do you respect him in your life? 
See, obedience to God naturally flows out of reverence for him because we love him and know him and we want to obey him. Do you revere God? Do you want to begin? I encourage you, friends, to read his word and believe it and apply it. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Are you wise? It begins with the fear of the Lord. How often do you think about God in any given day? Does he cross your mind at all during the day? Does he fill your thoughts? Or is he relegated to the morning when you read your Bible and pray? Fearing the Lord involves thinking about him, praying, talking with him. It means we take God seriously in all of our life. The third aspect that I share is are you stirred up by the Lord? Not just in your affections. It's common to be stirred in our affections while we're at church during singing. and Then we're walking out and living our lives then on our own terms. Being stirred by the Lord will affect our actions. It'll affect our thoughts. It's putting obedience in action, taking God's word in, thinking about it, meditating on it, and applying it for our lives. Well, there's more that I wanted to say. And Lord willing, I will in the coming weeks, but I have to move on. Third thing we can learn from Haggai is to persevere continually. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the sons of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet... Once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasure of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Here in chapter 2, Haggai receives the second message from the Lord less than two months after the first. And in this message, he's giving the people reassurance of God's presence in their lives. And this passage points to God's continued presence. He says there in verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. And then he says, Down there, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. God will always be with his people as we live in this present world. So no matter what obstacles may be hindering our walk with the Lord, the call is clear Keep pursuing God, keep working, keep persevering. And I don't know about you, friend, but I needed this reminder this morning that God is always with his children. Haggai had already mentioned, reminded the people of this in chapter 1, verse 13, but he does it again. In a world that declares God is nowhere to be found, we need to remind ourselves that God has never left us, that he's present, he's working, 
In fact, his, his very name is Emmanuel, means God with us, as Matthew tells us. There is the confidence we need in this world and in the church that he is with us and he's not done with us. Philippians 1, 6 tells us, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, God is not done with us. So the encouragement from this is to be strong and work for we know that God is with you. And then God also promises them peace there in verse nine. He says, in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And this peace included all the benefits you could ever want when you serve the Lord instead of yourself. See, they'd worked on their houses and got nicer, completed homes, but it didn't improve their lives. As they repented and turned their lives toward God and his will, God blessed them with peace, not just prosperity. They needed more. They needed the forgiveness of sins and peace with God. And this is what we truly need. God also promises a wonderful thing, that he will fill this house with glory, he says. And how does this translate in our lives? Well, God's goal for your life isn't merely to transform your marriage or change your circumstance or grow our church. Rather, he wants our lives and our church to act as a display cabinet for his glory. You see, friends, our, our lives are meant to be billboards for God's glory. And God doesn't instantly sanctify us when we become Christians. Why? so that his glory will be made more evident as he works in our lives. When we are weak, he is strong. And who gets the glory? You can respond. Four of you did. When we are weak and he is strong, who gets the glory? God does. And his grace is made more evident by his continuing work in our lives by purging sin. And this truth from God's word cuts against us because we want an easier life. We want a series of wonderful joys that possibly just might result in a little glory for us. We want his strength to be made perfect in our strength rather than it's being made perfect in our weakness. We want his grace to be given to others through us, but we don't want to be seen needing that same grace in our life. We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be seen as needing anything. We want to be seen as strong. And we want our church to be resembling the triumphs of the book of Joshua rather than the chaos in the days of Judges so that we can feel good about ourselves. We always want the mountaintop experience all the time and never the valley. But the only way that God will get the glory is if we rely on him and not ourselves. And submitting all of our lives to him, every part of it, friends. Submitting your work and your friendships, and your family, and your home. And living the Christian life means we are completely submitted to him in all of it. Because he deserves the glory and not us.
So the people were called to persevere in their obedience. And last, they're called to live expectantly. And that's what we can learn. I'm gonna skip to the last section here because I can, to verse 20 through 23. It's the last promise given to the people, which was a messianic promise. It says in verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai in the 24th day of the month. Speak Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, for the casual reader, this section can be confusing. And I'm not going to be able to unpack everything this morning. You'll have to come back to that. It's the last of his sermons, though, in this time, and it's the shortest. And here Haggai announces the Lord's salvation to be achieved through the restoration of the Davidic line. And the main purpose of this last sermon from Haggai is to announce that the Lord's intention is to raise up a new leader for his people. And the Lord addresses the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, and God uses the imagery of the final judgment and the promises to end nations and kingdoms of creation. But he also makes a curious promise here to take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring. It's curious because he soon vanishes from historical records soon after this. A century earlier, God declared through the prophet Jeremiah that a curse would come to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiakim. It says in Jeremiah 22, 24, as I live, declares the Lord, the son Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And God did do that. He tore him off. Jehoiakim was one of the last kings of Judah before the people were taken to exile. But now God is promising to pick up the line of David through Zerubbabel. And sure enough, if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, that's what we read. So God's promises in the last verses of Haggai are messianic in nature. They're not so much made to Zerubbabel the man, as much to the heir of the throne of David, the predecessor of Christ. He would be the protector of God's chosen people, the rebuilding of the temple, the restorer of dignity, the Davidic line. But in all of this, he is pointing us to Jesus Christ. You see, friends, all of God's promises through Haggai would find their perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And yet there's still so much that I didn't cover in this book. And Lord willing, I'll get to in the coming weeks. So let me conclude. You know, I opened by talking about decisions we make. And so let me ask you, if you could make every decision correctly and everything seemed to work out well for you, what would your life look like? You know, if you, if you got all that you really wanted, if things worked in your favor and you got all that you desired and wanted, can you picture it? Do you see it in your mind? Ask yourself, is God there? Is he at the center of your desires for life? Or is he somehow pushed to the side? Is God neglected in your plans for life? 
See, friends, the only way to be free from sins is to recognize them and to confess them. And God's word is clear and helpful. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sins do not fall away by themselves. We have to respond when the Spirit brings them to our minds and we need to confess and repent from them. Repent means to turn away from our sins and to turn towards God in obedience through faith. And perhaps God brought you here this morning for that one question, to consider your ways, to think carefully about your life, Do you understand repentance as Haggai preaches to us? You know, when it comes to repentance, which ones do we need to address first? Are you aware of of any part of your life where you're not living in obedience to God's word? Are there any outstanding sins in your life that you're just glossing over? What's causing you not to deal with it? Friends, are you cultivating a fear of the Lord? You respect God in all of your life. Obedience to God naturally flows out of our reverence for him. Are you stirred by the Lord when you spend time reading the Bible and praying? Not just your affections, but stirred in obedience and service to him. I pray that this book will bring growth in your walk with the Lord, as it has in mine. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge this morning that you are the giver of all good things. And you are good to all. And your mercy is over all that you've made. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your word that builds us up and refines us. Your word that brings us into likeness of your son. Help us to consider our ways. I pray for those here that have never considered what their direction of their life is. That they've never turned to you. May your spirit convict their hearts of the deceitfulness of sin. May you give them faith to believe and that you would save them. God, help us, your children, to be obedient to your word simply because we love you and we want to serve you. I pray that as a church family that we would continue to grow together, that we can get to know people, a part of our church outside of the Sunday service to be involved in each other's lives. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to serve one another. Father, we long to be a church where people can let their hair down and and care for one another in all of life. So help us to that end. Help us to be faithful with your word. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.